Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 19th episode of 2022, I think. It's it is. Yes, we're still, yes. we're still 2022. Just about, yeah. Yes. Yes, and we thought we would talk about content moderation, but before that, we also thought we would extend our thoughts to the many colleagues that are currently uh, facing challenges and difficulties because of the, the current state of the labor market and the layoffs that we've seen. And there are a lot of really good people on the market right now. There are, and, and I think I mean, it's made headline news, hasn't it, all around the world that, that there have been these very, very significant cutbacks, uh, I think particularly at Twitter and Meta, um, but Amazon, I, I just saw announced some as well. And, and it's, it's generally a time where there's a, a tech sector contraction um, and without going into the ins and outs of the economics or what's going on. I think just as, as, as uh, you said, Nicholas, as human beings, um, yeah. you know, a lot of these people are people that we know uh, who've moved around the different companies and many of them uh, are good people, highly professional in terms of the job that they do and and very personable people that you yes, enjoy spending time very with. Much so. And so at a human level, I think you and I have probably both been scanning our social media feeds and our inboxes just to check you know, who's okay and who's having to find themselves another job. So yeah, yeah. just a moment. And there, there's been a couple of initiatives where people are making lists and, and connecting folks. And so keep your eyes out. We'll put some of those in the show notes as well. So yeah. Yes. Um, moving on then, um, one of the things that we've come back to often when we've talked about tech policies is sort of uh, this this core issue of content moderation. Mm. And uh, you've been thinking a lot about this and thinking about how to how to sort of how do you construct a model that makes it easy to think about content moderation and understand the different aspects. And and you've been working at that. So so why don't you bring us up to speed a little bit with what that model looks like? Yeah. So, so I, I mean, it's very topical both for the regulatory agenda, we've got things like the European Digital Services Act and the UK Online Safety Bill, but also all the debates around t Twitter and you know, front and centre at the moment. What is their policy or is their approach going to change? What could the alternatives be? Uh, so I just want to take a step back and I've actually been writing something. So this, this and usually this podcast will go out with a written piece, which is going to appear on, on my blog at regulate.tech uh, around about the same time as the podcast. That's a nice new for a new yeah, for us. I like that. Yeah, different yeah. format. Um, yeah. And and it's because then I, it helps me uh, sort of visualize and set out what, what all of the different elements might be in a, in a sort of structured way in the post and then be able to discuss it with you and get get some expert yeah, feedback yeah, myself yeah. In, in this <laughs> format. And so really I was thinking of it that when we step back, uh, there's a tendency just to focus on what the platforms do. That you know, that I report it to the platform, the platform has policies, the platforms take it down. But I mean, the first insight is to say, look, that exists within a much, much sort of broader set of actors who can take content down. A lot of them are content owners themselves. And I sort of divide it into six different sets of actors. And I could just give the headline, then we can dig into them. And they're in three different buckets. So there's the content owner bucket. Yeah. And there you've got the person who posted the content, which is what I would call auto-moderation, auto yeah. in the sense of self-moderation. And then there's often a community moderation layer. It depends on the, the platform, but a lot of systems that there's a, you know, content is posted within some kind of managed space and the community does moderation. Then you've got the classic platform moderation and, and sometimes that's the platform themselves, the people they hire who, who sit there and look at content, but also platforms use external experts in different roles and different degrees and we could talk about that. So the, the platform though sort of controls their own moderation and they decide when to bring in external experts. And then the third bucket is, is the government uh, regulation. And again, that happens in two different forms. One is the takedown notice. So government passes laws uh, that lead to 
people having the right to insist that content is taken down. But that's item by item. And then this new thing that we're seeing, which is government actually says, look, I'm appointing a regulator and the regulator is going to oversee everything that you do. And that's a major change. So the three buckets, content owners, uh, uh, platforms and governments, and all of them have, uh, have decision making power in different contexts and different capacities. Yes. And, and one of the things that is interesting when you look at content moderation is that they have decision making capacity in um, in different instances, but they also they also approach this very differently, That's don't right. they? I mean, the, there is um, if you are a content owner and you take something down, you can take it down purely because you didn't like it. And you, you say oh, that was not what I wanted. I, I just deleted that or I took it down, etc. But but then as we move away from the content owner over to the government, the criteria become more and more robust. Right. Exactly. The reason you're doing it is different. And, and the auto one is interesting. I, I yeah, I don't have data, but I have a sense that I think auto moderation may actually be the biggest by volume. The most sort of common thing that people do is they post content, they regret it, or they get feedback. Uh, and in fact, Facebook used to sort of try and build which is whole, soft like, community moderation, soft right? community, feedback, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if feedback be you ultimately decide, you know, you can take or it down. bullying, worst case, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it is the mode actually when you think about it that a traditional media outlet does, like a newspaper, a newspaper you know, the content of the media outlet is auto-moderated. <laughs> you know, the, the media owner decides when to put it up and they decide if they want to withdraw a story and take it down again. Uh, it's it's actually the default mode for blogs. Uh, you know, if you own the blogging system that you publish on, you decide, I'll decide when to publish a blog post on regulate.tech and I get to decide, you know, if I want to withdraw that post and take it down again. So it's actually a very sort of embedded mode. And I actually think, the common cry, I think, from free speech advocates is almost, well, that should be the only mode. Mm. Like, you should always, you know, have the absolute right to decide when to publish and when to withdraw. But we can dig into why that's not going to be possible, uh, you know, out there in the real world. I mean, it, I mean, to be candid, if, if you own the whole stack, if, you know, in, in, if I have a computer in my bedroom and I put WordPress software on it and I publish on it, uh, there probably is nobody who can moderate my content other than myself oh, my the service provider, could sort of they, they can cut me off but not in a classic sort of you know classic moderation it's not moderation sense. it's more access it's more right? access they I could agree, deny yeah. me access so so that's still a feasible world but for most of the time most of us are publishing content using somebody else's infrastructure mm. and that's where all these other layers come in and I think across the content owners, the platforms and government, there's another thing that also is really different and, and quite interesting to think about. And that is that they optimize for different things. Exactly. And so let's talk about what the optimization function is for, you know, government, platform and content. Owners. Yeah. What is it that they're trying to accomplish with their either self-imposed moderation or the moderation by law? I mean, I think, again, candidly, generally for the individual content owner, the experience of having their content removed is nearly always negative. I mean, they, they may if they may choose to remove themselves because they're thinking of their personal reputation or somebody they've upset or you know how they or come just across. how they look. I mean, it's also exactly. it's often also part of their uh, identity, right? Exactly. Uh, this is who I want to be. This is how I want to express myself. And if they see that there's something jarring or a dissonance being created, then at that point they may just choose to take it down. So it's self-representation when it comes it, to the content owner, right? That's exactly right. It's how they want to be perceived that that is really their driving force and then then for a community it's 
the, the, how the community wants to behave. There's a set of rules, a set of norms within that community. And actually, really interestingly, if you follow the whole debate about people leaving Twitter to go to Mastodon, this, this federated service, what you're seeing is a lot of people going, oh my God, I, I joined this Mastodon community and they're incredibly restrictive in terms of what they think that you, you should publish because they've established a set of norms they've created in what they'd often see as a nice environment where they don't want you know, any jarring speech and the jarring speech is, is actually quite broad the way they've defined it. So communities, you know, their approach to moderation is how do we uh, uh, enforce community norms Normally, uh, I mean, there, there can be exceptions. You can create a community which is, we all want to say the most hateful things possible. <laughs> and we've seen instances of that where people have been thrown off the major platforms and, and they've sort of gone out and said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to create hateful spaces. Yeah. Uh, but generally speaking, it's people trying to create, I say, sort of well-behaved, well-managed spaces. And more than that, they're optimizing, they can optimize also for quite narrow functions. So you can imagine a, a community of scientists exchanging papers that they think are relevant to the subject they all have in common or um, a community of artists that are exchanging pieces of art that are relevant to the projects they're involved in. And so the interesting thing about communities is that they have this enormously broad spectrum right. of optimization functions that they can go for. Right? Yeah, and, and a lot of it is that relevance point. So this classic thing, you know, that's off topic. <laughs> Take yes. it somewhere else. It's not welcome in this community, not because it's evil, but just because it's not relevant and we're trying to we're trying to optimize for the signal to noise ratio we want a lot of signal in this community and that stuff is noise so please take it elsewhere and, and it's so interesting because in some sense I, I saw this um, there was a tweet actually a couple of months ago I wish I remember who wrote it but they said for community moderation uh, you could actually start from thinking that you should be moderating a community where you don't know the language and you could still do quite well because yes. you could see the patterns of relevance emerge from what people are posting, and you could you could even though you know don't not know the language, you could moderate really well in a community. That doesn't go for self representation, but it actually goes yeah. for communities. Exactly, and and actually they have been tremendously successful. And so we look, um, uh, you know, Reddit is the is the standout example. The subreddits, you know, many of them have, have been done really really well over the years. In in the Facebook context, you have Facebook groups and pages. But what's interesting, and this is, a, a, again, I'm sure there are academic studies of this, which, which we should really um, go and look at, but there, there is something around size of community and coherence of community. So a small coherent community, community moderation is generally going to work extremely well. A less coherent community, as in, you know, the people are more diverse in terms of their expectations of what happens in the community, can tend to sort of break down and a very large, very incoherent community, which will be the entirety of a social network platform, you know, community moderation really, really struggles at that point. And there's there's no consensus around what the norm should be. And there may not be sufficient respect for the community moderators, because that's the other point. Communities, in some communities, everyone can moderate. Uh, but more normally, as a community grows, you appoint some people to be your moderators, the guardians of the community. And this this point about norms that you make, I think, is fundamentally important because here we have an example of what the German sociologist Ferdinand Tönnies used to call Gemeinschaft und Gesellschaft. This idea that you have the village, the mm. small village, tightly knit, that can carry really strong norms and enforce them almost brutally, right? It's not necessarily nice to be the outsider in a village, but they can really enforce them. And that is the small, close-knit community. Yeah. And then you have Gesellschaft, which Tönnies says is the modern city. Mm. So the modern city as a social construct 
there are no norms for the modern city. There are many different norms. And you seek out your norm communities within the city, but the city itself has no norms. And, and it's surprisingly, I think it's a, a surprisingly low number of people needed to transition from village to city. Yes. In, in a way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you see that in the real world in that, you know, there are many villages in, in countries around the world that function perfectly well without a permanent police presence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know of any cities that manage to do that. It's no. just different. Once you get to a certain stage. But Tokyo is fairly close. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there's generally a need uh, of, for more than a social norm. But you're right. That may be Tokyo. Maybe a standout example yeah. that there are the, the power of the social norms is village like in its yes. in, intensity and, and closer to Gemeinschaft yeah. and Gesellschaft. Yeah. I think that's but norm, right. Normally you at that point in a, in a city need to have some kind of Enforcement. So, so that so these questions around the sort of the extent to which communities can moderate themselves. There's another feature of communities. Look, as long as they're closed communities, arguably, you know what goes on in that community shouldn't be a problem to anyone else. <laughs> uh, and that again c can survive. I think Reddit again was like that for a long time. That people said, look, you know, if you don't want that stuff, don't join that subreddit. Yeah. And there's a kind of live and let live. But actually, I think what we've seen again over time is that that even if you're not a member of the community, that people would be you know, worried about what's happening in a Facebook group, other Facebook users, even though you know, they're not in that group, they don't have to see the content, but the fact that it exists in, in a shared space starts to become problematic. So community moderation you know, is, is limited, uh, or, or that sort of community, respect for community moderation is tempered by the fact that people may not want it to exist even if everybody inside that closed community is happy with it. And that's a little bit about the permeability of the community. If you can join it and find out all of this horrible stuff and, and then tell others, then, then there's something about that that triggers people. But if it's completely closed, if it sort of has a hard shell, if it's sort of not even, if it's opaque to others, then those communities can live quite well. And that's what you see in places like Telegram, for example, yeah. that have, have fairly closed communities where we don't really know what those yeah. communities are. And I, I'd argue that we probably have a larger set of communities that we don't know what they're discussing now because of the overall trend in content moderation towards trying to moderate the open spaces into villages. That's right. But but if it's on a major platform and, and the content's sufficiently upsetting, and again, it's interesting, although well, Telegram's a weird hybrid, but actually for, for most personal messaging, the content isn't being hosted. So if you have a problem, you know, the, the message went from person A to persons B, C, D and E, but, but you know, the platform can't intervene because it's no longer hosting the content. It's flown from phone to phone. It's sort of but, true for Mastodon, I think. Yeah. I, should, I should dig into that. I don't that, know the architecture well enough. But, but where the content is on a, on a host, then what you then get is, look, if the content is sufficiently problematic, even if it's in a closed group, and again, there's our experience of Facebook, people who are worried about that kind of content will go and infiltrate the closed groups. Mm. And then they will still come back and say, Oi, platform, you've got to moderate this. You, you know, even though all the people in the group are happy with their community moderation, it's a hateful community and should not be allowed in your platform. Therefore, if somebody else can act, the expectation is that they should act, uh, even though there wasn't a complaint from within the community. Oh, now we move to the platforms then. So yeah, now we're heading up the stack. We're, so we sort we're of the stack. We're at the, 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 we left the communities, yeah. rich in variety and content and subjects yeah. and, and functions. And we're moving on to the platforms. platforms. And, they, and, they ca and their role sort of kicks in for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, we should, should recognize, look, if you were a platform, actually, if the community and the users did all the moderation, 
that's a happy place to be <laughs> because a it's really really cheap you're not having to pay to hire all these moderators and b actually the users will probably be happier if, if nobody else is intervening with their content they feel a much a much stronger sense of control so you'll probably have happier users for less money if it's all auto moderation and community moderation but <laughs> here's a big problem you have legal liability if it's your platform mm. and so so there's both two, two things what one is strict legal liability like if somebody comes to you and says there's stuff going on and it's not being moderated by the content owners or the community you've got to have a system to deal with that and then the other is your reputation so it's yeah. a, there's there's which, legality but also reputation commercial viability on top of reputation which, as well which will come come in we'll talk about the sort of facts that influence that but yes your reputation yeah. becomes critical so if if you're known as the the bad platform uh, you know, then then you're going to have to intervene more. And again, you see this trend over time. I think Reddit now has a lot more intervention than it used to do. As soon as a platform moves front and centre and people are starting to focus on it and they start seeing the bad stuff, then they say there'll be one, one element, which is, look, you're allowing illegal stuff, crack down on that. There'll be another sort of push which says, look, whether or not it's illegal, you just shouldn't have it there. Let's double click on that. So what is it that's happening there? Because in some sense, um, you know, there, there are a lot of platforms. Mm. Some platforms grow large, but is it size only that triggers it, this particular scrutiny? Or is mm. it that they've moved into, I'm thinking about Reddit, moved into to some kind of public sphere that we recognize them as a place that people refer to, that you go to that's become a source of knowledge it's is there like not just size but a slight institutional shift in the role that they play i think it's so it's it's you're right it's not just size i think it's attention and uh, and uh, i mean a lot of attention is complaint driven and and complaints depend on people's expectations so if you expect a platform to be terrible and you go there and it is terrible that may not generate many complaints because you know, people are like, well, that's what you what you expect. And actually, you see the big social media platforms often treated quite differently. If you went there and expected to be safe, or your children were on there, and you look and the things that they're seeing are terrible, then that's going to generate complaints. And once you generate complaints and you've got people upset about it, that's going to express itself through media, through politicians, through the, the users themselves pushing back. And so you start to get this dynamic where your reputation is under threat. So it's not, it's not strictly speaking, like content of type A leads to pressure in every case. It's, you know, content of type A in a particular set of circumstances where it's upset a particular group of people because their expectations have not been met. That mm. leads to a series of complaints and those complaints get amplified. By, by people who may, you know, the media may well have an interest in it sometimes, you know. But the, but the point being that once it's been amplified and your platform's name is being dragged through the mud as tolerating things it shouldn't tolerate, at that point, the pressure is on you to step up and act. Mm. And I think Reddit had a bit of that for a time. Like, you know, people were like, well, Reddit's just, yeah, it's just a place where people do crazy stuff and leave it alone. Uh, and then over time, it became more mainstream and more and more people are using it and there's more attention paid to it. And they, their decision is, I mean, in blunt terms, you know, do they do they go in the 4chan direction? Wow, we're just full of crazy stuff. You know, don't worry about it. Or if they want to have a serious business and they want to turn it into something long term sustainable, they perhaps need to go more in the Twitter direction. Yeah. Uh, so they had a fork in the road. I think 
And I actually, I want to come back and modify the, the metaphor that I introduced before about the village and the city, because I think the communities are the village and the platform is the city. Mm. Because in a city, um, you're quite fine with some part of the city being shady. Yeah. And, you know, lots of stuff happens there and I don't know what's up. They shouldn't go there after nightfall and, you know, there's all kinds of crime and really mm. not a good place. But if you want to go through gentrification, um, which is sort of the process that yeah. you could describe what Reddit has been through. It's sort of a gentrification, right? Yeah. It's becoming a more commercially viable place. It's becoming a place where more mainstream users are looking for information. And when that gentrification happens, it's almost like you clean up a part of the city and suddenly that part of the city needs to fulfill very different expectations from, from the citizens yeah. uh, than it did before. So you have your village in the communities and then you have this rich city which the platform is, is sort of not the city itself, but it's a neighborhood in the city. Yeah. So the city is made up of all platforms and some neighborhoods you're fine with being shady because you just know you, you shouldn't go there. It's like yeah. 4chan. 4chan is, is you're on the wrong side of the tracks, man. Yeah. Go go yeah. home. It's not going to work. Uh, and, then, and then you see these movements, the gentrification movements of some part of the city, some platforms in this ecosystem that want to climb the commercial ladder or more sort of just improve their reputation. There's Sorry. something about I, that. I think that's the dynamic. And I, and I think the critical thing is, look, if you, say if you want a long-term, sustainable, viable business, actually it brings us back to the current Twitter discussion, but I think it's, it seems to be pretty obvious that a long-term, sustainable, viable platform business has to gentrify. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's complete one. And so you see, um, um, Telegram for it is an, again an interesting example. And their their current position is they're not they don't want to be mainstream. You know they incorporated outside of all the major jurisdictions and they have a a, a very sort of free. Uh, they're all style Soho, right? Yeah, they, they, yeah, they're, yeah. They're yeah. speaking. I I don't know a lot. You know, no, no, but no, but no. sort of sort of yeah. like uh, an area like that. And 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 what's interesting actually when you re when you talk about Twitter is that of course we also see the opposite in cities where we see a neighborhood that was formerly yeah. quite posh, sort of go down in disrepute. Yeah. And, and we, we tend to forget that. But if you look at it, the history of platforms, if you look at, say, you know, uh, Friendster yeah. or um, even Second Life, yeah. to take an extreme example, Second Life is like a ghost part of the city right yeah. now. It's nobody goes there. You know, it's just a horrible place. Don't yeah. go there. It's like it's just, you know, squatters living in buildings. And it went and, through a phase where it, it was very sexual. And I mean, yeah. a lot of the reputational damage was precisely that. Have you seen what people are doing there? Yeah. Sex and gambling. It's know? essentially and flying dildos was the latest yeah. quote I heard, <laughs> yeah. which was like, what? And, and that, drove, and that <laughs> yes. drove people away. They left yeah. it. Yeah. Know? And so that again, you know, with, with that city image in your yeah. mind, you, you suddenly see how some neighborhoods fall into disrepute and, and uh, just exactly. completely, you know, stay away. So That's back, back to your question about incentives. So the incentive of the platform is, you know, to have a, a, a reason. Well, some of them might want to have a shabby neighborhood. <laughs> oh, but, but this but is most good, of them, Most of them want a gentrified neighborhood. But the reason they want a shabby neighborhood is that when you look at this, and this is an, this is an ensemble point that I think is mm. often lost, it's, it's a, a city that has no shady parts whatsoever yeah. becomes sterile exactly. and boring and nobody wants to go there and it, it feels a little bit artificial. Uh, so in a sense, <clears throat> there's always going to be a niche for shady areas as yeah. long as they don't become too shady so that the rest of the city starts to, there's like a spillover problem, there's a bleedover problem of crime or something like that. So, exactly. so there's an, essentially there's another level of this that we haven't discussed which is the moderation of the total ecosystem, the sum yeah. total of platforms. And I think that's something that's going to come through in the regulation, uh, you know, because when you regulate, uh, I mean, typically people regulate for uniform standards. Yeah. 
but in this case, we're saying you're right. If you want a vibrant, the internet space to be vibrant, then the regulator is going to have to apply differential standards, uh, uh, which is a kind of extraordinary concept of, yeah. well, well, you know, you're the the Oxford Street, which is the main posh shopping street in London. Just like we would in real life, we expect the managers of Oxford Street to manage it to a different standard from the managers of some sort of local high street in a poorer part of town. And Uh, honestly, we also allocate police differently. Yeah, all resources. Yeah, right. So in terms of the government regulation, to your point, one of the things we see in cities is that that there is actually uh, some places have less crime because if something happens there, the regulation is fast and direct and intervenes with maximum force. Yeah. But other, some places, you know, you report a crime if you're in the wrong part of town, police say you shouldn't be there. Yes. And and three weeks later, if at all, someone... You, you know, they get you a note where you yeah. say, we looked into it and we couldn't find anything. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that, so, but again, to, to sort of keep going with your analogy, it means it's a thankless task running a neighborhood. And you'll yeah. always get upset. If you gentrify, you'll upset a whole bunch of people who think you've gentrified too much. If you let the neighborhood slide, you'll have a whole bunch of people complaining that you've let the neighborhood slide. Plus, the neighborhood becomes kind of iffy to live in. So, yeah. yeah. And so then, the thing, yeah. you know, again, back in, in, in sort of platform land, uh, you can never get it right. <laughs> and yeah. so, whatever decision you make, you'll end up pissing off a bunch of people, like whichever direction you go in and your content moderation decisions. And so, that then, you know, I mean, in a sense, what we're experiencing and have experienced over time is, is platforms, I think, doing you know the best they can in the circumstances but more and more uh, um, voices of dissatisfaction and it's cumulative you know you 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 irritate one community this this year and then next year you irritate three or four different communities and cumulative over time you get to the point where we are now which is where i think all these regulations come from where there are so many disgruntled communities that they're now saying, look, the platforms cannot be trusted to manage the moderation themselves. They, these people can't be trusted to manage an area of the city themselves. They are making poor decisions. And so I want somebody else to step in. Yeah, a bit like New York when they decided that you can't leave every neighborhood to, to its own group, but you want to have some kind of central management as that well. That controls it. And and the first stage of, or the first response, I think, from platforms to that dissatisfaction, because they're very acutely, I know I was there, you're acutely aware of it every day because people are banging on your door telling you you're doing a terrible job and, and sort of holding you in front of committees and you know uh, lambasting you. So, <laughs> so you, you know that people are upset with it. And so the, the first response, I think, for platforms is to try and seek some kind of third-party validation for what they're doing. Mm. So, so the next step is this thing which I call external expert moderation. And actually, again, there's a lot more of that than people think. That's what I'm trying to tease out the iceberg here. There's a tip. Mm. The tip mm. of the iceberg is the classic content uh, moderation. But actually, there's a huge amount of other things going on. And one of those is a much greater reliance on external experts. I think, again, part of the motivation is to try and it's a defensive one by the platform, yeah. so it's not all us. But you can look at things, there's not just the oversight board that Meta created, which is a very high profile example where they very explicitly said, you don't trust us, so we're going to empower some other people to look at some of our decisions at least and over, override them. But there's also uh, expert groups in child safety, in counterterrorism, in, in a whole host of other things. Uh, uh, Meta has a great uh, fact checking program, a great big fact checking yeah. program where they've effectively outsourced the fact-checking piece of moderation to a network of bodies around the world. So there's a lot of this going on where 
the platforms have they've not surrendered control because they're inviting people in but they are working with experts on on individual slices of their moderation policy yeah that's right it's like hiring um hiring a private guard firm for your neighborhood yeah. <laughs> in a sense but the guard firm is, is slightly more uh they, they what the experts do is not really that what the experts do is that they they tell you how you can act in order to make your neighborhood yeah. more valuable but but maybe this does work in uh, back in the you know in in real life as well. So so you take an area like child safety. If you work in local government, certainly in the UK, your key partners in in as a local government um, child protection agency are often local NGOs. They're people outside. They're experts. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Who, who work in there's an organisation called NSPCC and there's others here, and so you're often co-opting experts. Uh, from from NGOs and from the community to help you do that. And, and interestingly, some of those same organizations are the ones now either criticizing or working with the platforms. Yeah, so there's a right. kind of parallel in and, the real And world. the pattern is interesting because it also leads to certification, right? A certain mm -hmm. set of rules and standards that you're supposed to, to abide by. And those standards, if you abide by them, give you a sort of get out of jail free card. You're yeah. doing this right. You're doing all of the things that you can be expected yeah. to do. And it's a range of counter extremism would be another that a lot of local authorities will work with experts on countering uh, different forms of political extremism and, yeah. and you know they're not going to and they know so which low. neighborhoods to look at and, and, they know, yeah. and, and you know they also usually are actually quite nuanced about the way they do this yeah. they don't say you can't live in that neighborhood but they try to find mechanisms to intervene that yeah. are not necessarily about shutting down the neighborhood because you can't yeah. but figuring out how you can intervene at an early age with yeah. people in school or trying yeah. to find better role models or all those kinds of exactly. things so which so so it seems in a way as if if you're seeing um, a convergence between the virtual and, and the real world in terms of the social patterns that we're seeing? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think there's a lot of, of parallels, a lot, a lot of reason. The rationale for doing this is very similar. It's, it's recognizing, I mean, two things. One is that you literally don't necessarily have all the expertise. And two, even if you did, you need to, to work with uh, the experts out there in the community. And if you don't, whatever you do is going to be invalid. And again, I think that's the yeah. experience of the online platforms. Even if they get it right, the fact that they made the decision without working with the experts on counterterrorism, whatever, means that no one's ever going to see their decision as valid. So it's much, much better to to work publicly with a counterterrorism or a child protection organisation and demonstrate that you've you've got joint shared standards. You're working yeah. with someone else. I like that, and I I think that if you think about the dynamic between different platforms or different neighborhoods in our extended metaphor uh, there there's there's like two levels of uh, improvement here or two levels of change one is a platform can look at another platform and say oh they're doing this much better they've yes. been validated much better I need to do that so there's intra-platform competition and then there is the platform being regulated by the regulator which yeah. we'll come back we'll come to. back to yeah that's but but uh, out of interest which one do you think drives most change and what's the healthiest dynamic there should it be competition between platforms or should it be regulation what do you think is if you look at a city is a city healthiest when neighborhoods are competing about being attractive or is it healthiest when there's a central regulator saying here's what you need to do yeah i i think there's a real limit to the competition between platforms as a positive force because they you know that's not uh they're not too well. What they don't want to be is the worst, <laughs> but it doesn't make you want to be the best, if that makes sense. I'm yeah, not yeah, sure. Yeah. And again, uh, we've it's not a race to the top. It's another areas, yeah. And I think there's sometimes a perception that 
like if if consumers were making choices on that basis, yes, that might work as a dynamic. And people also say this about privacy. I'm I'm not convinced that consumers are sort of, sort of they will be worried about privacy and security and safety and all of these issues. But I'm not sure that's a sufficient force in their decision making compared with things like convenience, speed of application, functionality, who's on who, which of my friends are on the service. And so it's a it's a it's a force, but it's a relatively low force. You don't want to be the bottom. You don't have a bad reputation, but there aren't really strong incentives for you to say, well, I'm going to spend twice as much as as the platform down the road to make sure that, you know, I uh, they get rid of 90 percent of the hate speech quickly. I'm going to get rid of 98 percent. Yeah, I'm not sure that's sufficiently compelling for a platform to make that decision independently as a, as a business case. That's um, probably true. And, it, and it's actually probably true for neighborhoods too, because at some point you're going for good enough, you're not going for best possible. Exactly. Because best possible is really, really expensive, right? It's yeah. super expensive. Yeah. And from a platform point of view, this this is sort of, you can you can invest and invest and invest away, you know, until the cows come home. Um, one thing I just would say on the external experts, I think one interesting dynamic there, and, and we should sort of ex uh, flush it out, which is that there is a tendency, or there is a criticism, which I think has some justification, that the platforms will work with the external experts. They'll choose external experts whose advice they're happy to take and not work with external experts whose advice they disagree with. And I think that's a reasonable and sort of fair, fair criticism. I, I think they try and make efforts to bring critics in, but there's sometimes a dynamic where they're not doing that. And again, if we take our real world analogy, if you're a local authority and there's a child safety group that just says, you're terrible, you're terrible, you're terrible, you're less likely to work with them than the one that says, we'll work with you to try and provide child services. So. Yeah, it's just no, that's also more nature. creative. I mean, it's yeah. not just human nature. It's actually that if you want to accomplish something, it's hard to invite somebody who has nothing but criticism for your approach. Yeah. So I, th I think there is a fine line here um, yeah. between giving, um, between being a critic in a way that encourages change and understanding mm -hmm. that that change might take time, etc., and then being a critic um, for the attention that it gives you as a critic. Um, there is something there that's sort of tricky. I think. That's true, but that, but then there are also some critics who are saying, "Look, I, I just I do want you to spend ten times as much on this thing." And from my perspective as an NGO, you know, if you did spend ten times as much tackling the problem that I worry about, that would be good. Yeah, so there's the legitimate criticism not, yeah. that is not picked up. I think that's true yeah, and some right. of it is just like I'm making I'm making what the platform sees excessive demands, but the demands themselves are not crazy yeah they're just more than the platform is willing to stand that, or maybe maybe they start at a higher level than yeah. where the platform currently is willing exactly. to go exactly yeah it's yeah. like coming into a really shady part of town and saying i think you should be dubai yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah spend the money and make it dubai or yeah, yeah yes well, interesting so so now we're moving from the expert yeah we're the, sliding up to to the the ultimate monopoly of violence yeah the government <laughs> yeah yes. so, so there are two different ways in which the government uh, uh, i think does effectively enforce content moderation and which is to say is it's it's content moderation sort of by government and and the first is that nearly every country in the world has passed a bunch of laws that make certain kinds of speech illegal mm. and having done that having written into law that this kind of speech and that's everything from child abuse images through to you know illegal use of copyright materials there's a very broad range of things and having said there are criminal and civil penalties for anyone who facilitates access to this you are basically saying you know I, that my expectation is that platforms will moderate this and then there are different people who 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 on a daily basis enforce the moderation when it's, it comes to copyright material, rights holders send in 
millions of notices, which are these legal notices with the backing of government saying you must moderate this content. Yeah. Uh, something like child abuse material, it might be the police or it might be an NGO who is sending these things in. But there's a, there's a lot of content moderation that's going on, you know, backed up by legal powers. The platforms don't have discretion. It's not their choice. I mean, they well, they can choose to defy the law, uh, but again, if they're at all serious about being a long-term viable business, they won't do that. Um, but typically, they they're just going to respond. They get the notice. They'll do what they're legally required to do. Uh, principally in the country of establishment, yeah. they can't get out of there. And then in any other country where they have a significant base, they may choose to defy these notices in, in countries where they don't have people and where it's less important to them. Or where they, where they, uh, there, there's also this element of legitimate, recognizing legitimacy with yeah. the requests, I think. Exactly. So there's, there's some wiggle room around it. But basically that is, you know, when government passes laws making speech illegal and there's some kind of liability placed on the platforms, we should see that for what it is, which is a way of government sort of indicating how it wants content to be moderated on a sort of item by item basis. Yes. And usually it's not uh, media dependent. So usually that's true for content throughout society. It's a limitation of the the, the sphere of expression. It's not uh, a rule targeting the platform. No, it's saying wherever this appears. And, and again, it can vary by, from law to law, but typically there's some kind of facilitation distribution sort of clause in the legislation that will say <clears throat> you must do this and so it's it's item by item uh, the enforcement bodies are sort of many and varied but it can lead to systemic changes as well uh, on the basis of, look, if you're a platform and you you are continually getting notices about a particular form of content and you estimate that you now have serious legal risk exposed to legal risk you may then put in place system you may change your policies and change your platform moderation policies to match the legal requirement and the standout example is copyrighted material now, pretty much every major platform has automated systems that just identify and sweep copyrighted material off of them and you know, strictly speaking they don't the law is not it's changed recently but the law for many years didn't say you had to do that in fact that you couldn't be required to do it you know, it's supposed to be an individual notice from an individual rights holder. But cumulatively, the risk gets to the point where it's not worth doing. And there were also industry agreements and new yeah. tools being developed, etc. Especially, I think, the DMCA in the US yeah. that left some room for determining liability vis-a-vis -vis the measures that were right. taken by the parties to the to the conflict. Yeah, but that law sort of changed again. And another example on the criminal speech side would be, look, Holocaust denial is a criminal offence in a number of different countries. And the platform I used to work for at that time, Holocaust denial was not strictly against its terms, but it effectively changed its rules, its policies for those countries where it was illegal. Uh, so that it, it, its own moderation system was sort of built the legal requirement in. Um, and in fact, Germany, interestingly, their Network Enforcement Act is effectively a way of trying to boost that, that model by giving every individual the right to issue a legal notice and requiring every platform to respond uh, to that legal notice. And there's another effect here that's interesting to talk about because we talk about this as if it's a legal environment that's given and in this legal environment there are certain pieces of content that are going to be brought down. But but the focus on pieces of content is not entirely truthful because one second order effect is that if you get a lot of notices about a piece of content from a specific speaker, yeah. then at some point the second order effect will be that platforms will start looking at blocking not the speech but the speaker. Exactly. So there are slides. So the, depending on the intensity of the regulatory climate, you can see second order effects that come through 
platform moderation, which is voluntary, but is a shorthand for trying to minimize risk. Exactly. And, and for the platform incentive, when they're responding, the, the issue that's top of mind for them is legal risk. Yeah. And you're right, a, 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 a speaker who is consistently exposing them to risk they're going to potentially then try and remove them altogether because otherwise, I mean, it's expensive, frankly. You're spending your whole time doing legal reviews of all these endless you know, complaints coming in. And if they are problematic, if, if you, the speech is, is problematic and illegal and it's happening on a repeated basis, then that starts to raise a red flag. Um, we should look at, again, you rightly raised, what's the, what's the motivation of the of the uh, uh, moderators in each each of these sections. And yes. here, the motivations are, are different. So the motivation of the copyright holders, obviously protecting their, their property. So there's a whole bunch of intellectual property stuff where, where the, the motivation is that of people protecting their property and they have persuaded lawmakers to give them the legal tools to do so. The motivation of the lawmakers is to keep the copyright holders happy <laughs> because they're seen as productive members of their society. Uh, the motivation of those sort of pursuing other forms of criminal content, again, can vary, but it's, it's usually often it's organisations. It will be a child safety organisation or an anti-hate speech organisation or a law enforcement body that's simply trying to enforce the law. And again, the motivation of the policymaker is is clean neighbourhoods. <laughs> they, they, you know, the, past, the reason they pass those laws is because they see that without restricting that speech, without creating that, that legal risk, uh, their societies are going to be damaged in some way. Yeah, and and the slightly more uh, the, the, the more high ground version of this argument is to say that that if the platforms optimize for their reputation or for their commercial viability, what the regulator is supposed to supposed yeah. to optimize for are human rights. Yes, of different yeah. kinds. And actually, copyright is a human right. Privacy is a human yeah. right. The right to your life and to your property is a human right. Exactly. So, so in some sense, this is the community having decided that certain rights are extended to all and trying to protect those in the kinds of legislation that they put forward. Now, do they succeed? Is the balance yeah. struck right? I don't know. So, but it's, it's sort of, you could argue in the, in the wider scheme of things that that's, that's the, the noble interpretation of the function that the regulator is trying to solve for. There is, and that's a, that's a very happy view of the world. <laughs> um, uh, is government's role to optimize for human rights? Question. Yeah. And uh, I, I think the answer is it... So they were like, meant to. <laughs> so something like me or you, it should be, but I'm not even sure. I think in many countries it's not meant to. That government is meant, certainly in many environments, I think, around the world, it's meant to optimise for social stability, which is a mm. different thing from human it's rights. It's a very different thing, you're right. Yeah, and I think that's how they often see themselves. And so a lot of the laws that you see, and this is where it gets contentious, because you will have people in the platforms who are thinking government should be optimizing for human rights and we're going to look at it all the requests through that lens and you have people in government saying no 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 i'm optimizing for social stability oh this is a really big question though because i think that this is a viable question in almost any content moderation mm. discussion you're having around regulation because you should ask really truly is this an expression of your uh, willingness to protect basic human rights or is this an expression for your willingness to protect social stability. Now, social stability is a really um, questionable function to optimize for, uh, because social stability you can have in very authoritarian states. And in fact, that exact language is traceable to some very authoritarian states who use this in ITU contexts, for example. And so, so social stability versus human rights in terms of what the regulator should frame their work in is, yeah. is a bit of a, a, I think it's, I mean, I'm optimistic and naive and idealistic and I take all of that, but I think that that's actually a key point for people to keep an eye on when they look at content 
content regulation so, being introduced. Yeah, it is exactly. And that's why the same regulation in the hands of a different country can, can have very different effects. And actually, if you look, if people are interested, go, go and look at the transparency reports that all the major platforms do about the government's notices to take stuff down. And you'll see there are many, many thousands each month coming from authoritarian, more authoritarian countries. It tends to be you know, the greater volume tends to come from more authoritarian countries and some democracies that have more law that's geared towards social stability. So again, the standard example is Germany, where Germany has a lot of law that re really is designed uh, with, with a sound logic, sort of post the Second World War. They, they, they wanted to prevent social fracture and breakdown uh, again. And so they have a lot of law that's geared towards that. So a lot of the takedown requests that, that, that um, platforms receive are in the name of social stability across all types of government. But where they are more likely to accept that a an anti-sedition or anti-insurrection sort of type request is okay is in a country which has a strong human rights culture. And where they're likely to reject that is in a country that has a weaker human rights culture. Now, of course, those latter group of countries will argue, well, the social stability ultimately is going to protect human That's rights. So it's maybe it's more rights. about sort of at, 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 um, atomic individual human rights today or whole society human rights at some vague point in the future. And, uh, but it also matters, I think, how you motivate this, because it's one, of the, one of the constant recurring tropes in the discussion about uh, online platforms is that they're eroding democracy, and that's the kind of language that's being used. Um, and eroding democracy, that means not that they're threatening human rights, but in many cases it actually means that they threaten social stability. Yes. That people start voting for the wrong parties and start uh, behaving um, hatefully against each other. And it's interesting to tease that out, because if, if a lot of that criticism that we see is essentially based on the social stability argument, it would be interesting to see a line of criticism that was more oriented around the human rights argument and I think it would look very different because it would essentially be the kind of argument that says well you shouldn't take stuff down unless it's explicitly illegal because this is actually a guarantor for some of our basic human yeah. rights yeah I think disentangling that is really interesting because because across the US which doesn't have the human rights convention the way that Europe does it its rights are sort of enshrined within the within the constitution, but it's, it's, it's a different model. It's not an explicit sort of list of, of rights that we, we see in the European Convention. But the United States, I think, would say that, in a sense, the reason they had their First Amendment uh, approach and that they were quite relaxed about speech previously, I think, was that they felt their social stability was guaranteed. They were very secure in their social stability. And so there was a there was a view, you know, it's, it is extraordinary to people like us that they will let Nazis in Nazi uniform march through their towns, like something that's sort of, yeah. you know, really, really it's not, bizarre. Not, yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah. And the reason they could do that is because I think they had a very, very strong confidence in the institutions and that their social stability was so strong that they didn't need to have speech restrictions in order to maintain social stability and now you're seeing precisely that you are seeing more people come out effectively and saying platforms restrict more speech because yeah. the speech is threatening social stability so it, it is, is more tearing our society apart, apart. Exactly. yes really. yes 
That's worthwhile thinking about because if you do optimize for social stability and you at some point are forced to sacrifice the, the sort of human rights that come into conflict with stability, you're building a very different society than if you yes. build one that is sort of focused on human rights. Now, there's an interesting phenomenon here that, I, that, I, uh, that I'd like to get back to. One of the things I noted uh, a long time ago was that uh, you would have a lot of people who were really close to the border of what was legal or not yes. legal and close to the border of what the community allowed for themselves or not. And I remember a lot of agonizing going into trying to figure out what to do with those edge cases. Mm. Why? Uh, Why did we spend so much time on edge cases? Yeah, I, well, I, th I think, I mean, they're often the noisiest in terms of they get the most attention. <laughs> and so there's a sort of squeaky wheel syndrome, which is, you know, you put the oil on the squeaky wheel and so you're not, the, the stuff that's just sort of working away is fine. But the stuff that's on the edge uh, actually will get a lot of attention. And, and um, from a, a Facebook platform at the time point of view, um, one of the things that they you could see was quite often the stuff that got the most distribution because people were commenting and engaging on it was stuff that was at the edge and stuff that was more mainstream wasn't. So I think it's simply that it's just that the, the, the edge cases get attention from the community uh, and therefore, you know, that then focuses all of the action on that. But there were also edge cases that, that didn't necessarily get attention from the community, but got a lot of attention from, from politicians. Yeah. And, and where you were sort of constantly looking at them and saying, what principle are we protecting here? And yeah. I think that there was a sense, and this is interesting, the bleed over from the government function where you're optimizing for human rights into the platform function of optimizing for your reputation, where platforms were really trying to do what they felt was their task, the yes. human rights task. Yeah. And, and that bleed over, I think, created a, a, a whole lot of interesting dynamics. It, it does, and that then brings us to our last sort of big bucket of regulation, which is formal government regulatory oversight. So this is different from the, the spot uh, laws that make individual pieces of content illegal to, to government saying, look, we are now going to take on ourselves the power to tell you how to do content moderation. Not Not what decision to make over each individual piece of content, but we're going to make you come and explain to us what your policies are, what you're doing about it, give us all the data, uh, open up the the kimono, I think is the phrase. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, show us, oh. show yes. us everything that's sort of going on in your platform and justify it to us. And if we're not happy, we can fine you <laughs> or prosecute you in some way. So it's a very different, and, and that then does require, I think it can be really interesting because it's going to flush out a lot of these questions and bring them back to government. Government's yeah. now going to have, you know, it's all about trading equities here, and government's now going to have to show if it doesn't like the trade-off that the platform has made, it's going to have to at least give us some sense of how it thinks that trade-off should be done differently. And there, actually, again, the UK is is, is uh, particular. I think the UK, this is very driven by child safety. So you say, what's the motivation? It, it's, it's not about... There's certainly language around protecting human rights more generally, but in very particularly it's saying we need to protect the rights of children yeah. and children are being damaged online. And therefore we need to take powers to ourselves to tell platforms how they must regulate if there are children on their platform. That's that's yeah. the sort of the heart of what they're doing. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff sort of around that. European Union, there's certainly the child protection piece, but there's also... I think a lot more explicitly in the Digital Services Act, it's around social stability, it's hate speech, social disorder, misinformation. That's much more, I think, sort of front and centre. But again, the dynamics can be the same. The European Commission and people in the member states are taking on themselves the power 
to to hold the platforms accountable and potentially give them instruction if they think they're doing it wrong. Should that then mean that we get a cleaner division of labor across the different uh, people in the stack that you've described? Because now that governments have stepped up and said we're going to do regulatory oversight, they could take care of all of those edge cases. <coughs> they should be responsible for them. And frankly, in that world, what the platform should do is only optimize for its reputation. What the community yeah. does is optimize for the particular function the community has set itself and the individual is still stuck with self-representation. Should, yeah. should that division of, of labor become clearer now when, uh, when platforms don't have to do the oversight work? Will uh, it be cleaner? I mean, th this is where I'm an optimist and a lot of other people aren't. They think it's going to be a disaster. And the, and the, uh, but it all comes down to the quality of the regulators. And again, this is very particular to UK, Europe, because if you ask me the same question about other countries, uh, was I comfortable with with the uh, Russian Duma giving their regulator equivalent powers, the answer would be no, because I, I, I don't think they would be exercised in the same way. But do I think that we could end up with a reasonably clean sort of uh, understanding of who's doing what in the EU and the UK? I think, yes, that's, that's, uh, that's the outcome I'd like to see. Where again, as a citizen and a user, I, 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 I felt I'd be missing an element. And the element is, what does government actually think? Yes. Uh, because government, I know government thinks the platforms are doing a bad job, but I, I'm I'm not as clear about what government thinks a good job looks like. And of course, when we talk about governments, we talk about elected officials then putting agencies and regulatory exactly. officials in place. So we're talking about ourselves. The we're institution of government, this. importantly, yeah, not any individual politician. No. But what do we think institutionally? Just in the same way that institutionally. You know, we I know what we think of murder or drug use, and those change over time. I know what the institutions think of using a drug like cannabis today, and politicians can change that, and so we can treat it differently tomorrow. But, but at any one moment in time, you have an understanding of what the institution thinks. Uh, and is and right that outcome. decision should be there because of the democratic accountability it, for those governments should they go overboard, for example, right? Exactly. That's the check and balance you rely Which on. Which means that you actually could support democracy a little bit with this division of labor. Yeah. I mean, I think it is ultimately it is more democratic if all if everybody is playing their part and the accountability mechanism are there. The concerns, which I totally recognize, and I'll express myself when we're debating it, are you know, that the regulator doesn't act like an institution but becomes a sort of uh, expression of individual politicians' whims on a given day. So that sort of stuff would be problematic or that they're not good enough to do the job effectively, that they don't have the the capabilities that they need, they don't really understand what's going on. But but I say, ultimately, I think sharing that or as a citizen, seeing, seeing sort of both uh, points of view. I want to know what the platform thinks. I also want to know what my government thinks. That's going to be really important. The edge case points are fascinating. If I were still working in a platform, I would be constantly going to my regulator. Here's an edge case. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yes. and then the regulator's going to yes. be, look, we're not deciding individual cases, which is right. Yeah. But the, the regulator does have a view. The regulator in the UK says, look, you must have a duty of care, you know, to protect people from certain types of content. And and I want to, I would want to get the regulator and say, look, if I let this content stay up, content of this class, here's 10 examples. Yeah. Do you think I've met my duty of care? Or do you think I, in order to meet my duty of care, I need to take this down? Yeah. And I'd want to have that conversation on a regular basis because that's the point. The point of having the regulator is precisely to be able to give that kind of guidance. And we have to come back to another point, which I think is interesting here, and that is that 
for that to work well, for the regulator and oversight to work well, for the regulation to work well, you need checks and balances somewhere else. And yeah. that's us as citizens and not users. Because we exist at two points in your value chain, right? We exist yeah. as users who post and can do auto uh, content moderation, as you call it. But we also exist as citizens who are supposed to provide checks and balances on the way that the government exercises its power. Which means that for this all to become the kind of healthy, uh, optimistic vision yes. that you're, you're espousing, we actually need more citizens to invest their time in thinking about human rights, thinking about expression, thinking about what reasonable, uh, reasonable uh, the limitations are, which should mean also that the oversight should come with rich reporting, auditing and accountability for the regulator. Exactly. So that factor, how does the regulator get citizen input? is going to be crucial. And again, they have a lot of experience with this. Certainly the Ofcom, the UK one, has been doing broadcasting regulation for years. And broadcasting regulation, again, you, it's a similar exercise. You upset somebody. So yeah. there's a whole bunch of people who think something shouldn't have been broadcast. And there's a whole bunch of people who think, damn, you know, I've got a right to broadcast that stuff. Damn, don't interfere with me. And, and But they're used to trying to get the input and reconcile those viewpoints. So they're going to have to do that. I say it's going to be really hard for them. <laughs> it's going to be really hard. But, but Ofcom is really but, good, though. I mean, yeah. I think it's, I, I, I have high hopes. I think yeah. that could work. I'm sort of with you on the optimism. Okay, so yeah. this is the model that you're going to publish um, yeah. on the blog. Share it's some notes good. and sketches. Just it's, it's really, I think, important that we sort of, we do stand back sometimes and, and see if we're all talking about the same things. And, and building this mental model also yeah. will help us as citizens to figure out what it is we want to look out for when we see content uh, moderation from government oversight, yeah. which I think is a little bit of a checklist there on, on what should you as a citizen require if this new oversight is put in place? What would you like to know in order to hold the regulator accountable? It's a really important point that, that we haven't been discussing. We've been discussing yeah. what it means that there's regulatory oversight and different kinds of pessimistic scenarios have been put forward. But at the end of the day, that is actually just not thinking that people are up to it. Yes. We need to be up to that accountability mechanism, the function of calling into to question if this is the right balance that's being struck. Play our part as citizens. And citizens. As a close of my, yeah, my conclusion is content moderation. It's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. Excellent. Thank you. Well, we can find this blog on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Thank you. And thanks for listening. And we hope we will have you with us soon again.